The Fool's Gallery presents Chapter 4, Watchdog, taken from the journals of Max Landau. Year, 148 D.D., 36 days into our voyage. Our second night in last port started as nearly identical to the first. If only it had stayed that way. In her dark corner, the captain drank herself into unconsciousness, only to be carried tenderly to her bed by Niles Parbat. Don and Jenna played battle knives with even more viciousness, alcohol, and severed fingers than before, and Willis sat off in the corner, glumly watching it all. I, however, was on a different mission. That night was to be our last in last port, and I was intent on making a sail. I had some items of value and others of damning evidence, and I needed to get rid of both. Luckily for me, Lastport has no shortage of disreputable rogues who are more than willing to take advantage of a naive tourist such as myself. I found two of them watching the burlesque show Topher's Ram, the tale of the great army general Topher and his impressive battering ram. Topher tried to take the castle of the beautiful Queen Abigail and make her his wife, but every time he tried to break down her castle gates, Abigail would drop her portcullis, snapping off just a bit more of Topher's ram. The show ends with Topher holding a splinter of wood and Abigail comparing it to her little finger. It was a classic, but I had seen it before, and so had my acquaintances. So we made our way to the dark corner the captain had abandoned and began to talk business. They were two large, ugly fellows by the names of Caro and Dance, they did not seem to be the brightest, which suited my plans fine. Though the main goal was to get rid of my valuables, the amber spider most of all, there was no reason I couldn't swindle my way towards a little extra gold. This was our last night in civilization, and I suspected gold would quickly lose its value the further we sailed from last port. My plan was to get everything I could out of them now and leave this island as penniless as possible. It seemed Caro and Dance were half-brothers. Caro was the larger and more intimidating, but from the way Dance eyed the woman playing Abigail, I marked him as the more dangerous. Their eyes lit up when I showed them what was inside my knapsack, showing a special interest in my amber spider. We quickly settled on a number. Dance, however, claimed they did not have the money on hand and asked me to meet them in just 30 minutes outside the bar. There, they would have the money. I agreed, reasoning that if they tried any funny business, I would be in sight of my crew and well protected. Also, for what reason would they try something? It was my last night in last board, and I was quite clearly giving away all I had. The brothers left. I threw back several more drinks, then moved outside to wait and have a piss. I think perhaps the best feeling in the world is the feeling of drunkenly staring at the stars while having a good piss. It's the one time in life where I feel like I have any control. That's probably not a good indication of how my life is going, but there you are. But all perfect moments end, and usually at the hands of a friend who's not as drunk as you. I heard Willis's cough before I saw him. I rolled my eyes, praying for patience, but received none. Willis was leaning against the wall, a look of superior disapproval on his face. He asked what I was doing, despite knowing full well the answer. Can't you tell, I said, continuing to paint the wall yellow. Willis did not laugh. His face was set. It appeared this was a very serious matter. I sighed and tucked myself away. Willis never had much appreciation for my schemes. 
Having all the money he would ever need, he never understood the hunt for it, the need for it, or the fun of it. He reminded me of the last time he got caught up in my shenanigans. We finished the night hiding underneath a bridge, freezing our delicates off in the waters of the Sedogian River. Willis made me promise that night to give up my dealings, my black market connections. I laughed through chattering teeth and said that I would, but only if he bought me a ship and sailed me far away from here. A year later, Willis did exactly that and seemed intent on collecting on my promise. I ignored him, telling him to go back inside. But Willis, for all his faults, is a good friend. He grabbed my arm, trying to pull me back inside. To be fair, his reasoning was sound. I didn't know these men, after all, didn't know their intentions, if they were going for backup, weapons, or something worse. I once again was putting myself in a situation I couldn't control, and it would turn out the worse, as it always did. As it always did. The way he said it, as if you were my mother, expecting me to fail, that's what got to me. That, and the brandy, is what made me say it. I ripped my hand from his grasp and said, Leave it be, Willis. I'm not your brother. Willis froze in place, his eyes wide and frozen. He dropped my arm and nodded. No, he said. If only you were. He took a step away from me, shaking his head. Then a shovel swung out of the darkness, taking him in the face and knocking him into the mud. I took a step towards him, but something hit me in the back of the head, and I too fell into darkness. I came to, and immediately wished I hadn't. My head was in splintered agony, and I could feel from the hard wood under us that we were no longer at the bar. I knew where we were before I looked up, and I felt the familiar sinking feeling of being in over my head. I had argued with Willis that we were safe, because what could these two men possibly steal from us? I got my answer as I looked down the dock to where the Alabaster Queen slept. Caro forced us to our feet and towards the ship, ignoring my protestations that there was at least five guards left on board. They seemed unconcerned with that and were proven right when we walked up the gangplank and found ourselves alone on the queen's rotting deck. There were four of them now, Caro, Dance, and two smaller but just as dim-looking accomplices. They all wore red scarves over their faces that reminded me of the captain, I turned to dance and found a red scarf over his face as well. Why they were hiding their identities, I could not say. No one was here to recognize them. Dance ordered the two new men to stay on deck with Willis as I gave him and Caro a tour of the captain's cabin, promising that if I tried anything, Willis would be eating his own tongue before he could scream. I nodded, looking up into the soft, creaking mast of the Alabaster Queen, praying for some kind of deliverance. But none came, and I opened the captain's door and stepped into her cabin. The place was disgusting. Empty bottles of brandy lay atop soiled clothes, fit into overturned boots and shattered into uncountable pieces at the foot of a broken mirror. The smell was overpowering. The only clean part of the cabin was the bed, where pristine white sheets folded perfectly underneath a fluffy feathered pillow. It was an island of care and a sea of hopelessness, and its origin was a mystery to me before I remembered Mr. Parbat carrying the captain to a room just a few short hours ago. The brothers began to ransack the place, though I couldn't imagine them doing any more damage than the woman who lived there. 
I approached the bed slowly. There was something sticking out from underneath the pillow. Something shiny. I wiggled it out and caught my breath. It was a medal of some sort in the form of a golden flag. It was pure gold, and it rippled as if it was caught in the wind. I wondered where the captain had stolen it from. The medal was pristine, no dust or scrapes marking its immaculate surface. In fact, apart from the bed, it was the only thing in the whole cabin that seemed well cared for. It seemed Mr. Parbat was more than he appeared. What you got there? Dance's hard voice cut through my musing. I considered for a moment hiding the medal. But where and for what purpose? They would beat me or kill me if they suspected, and no medal, no matter how much you could pawn it for, was worth that. I handed it over, and Dance's eyes widened with greed. It appeared this expedition would be well worth the trouble. A scream ripped through the night. It was horrible and strangled, and then a loud thump silenced it. The brothers looked at each other, and then Caro opened the door and charged out, only to trip immediately on the body that lay across the entrance. It was one of their men, the opening in his neck partly covered by his red scarf. We jumped over him to find their second accomplice jerking several feet off the ground, a noose around his neck. Caro screamed and ran to his friend, grabbing hold of his legs and pushing upwards. But the man was large, and the rope held him tight. But Carol would not let go. Even as the man's legs stopped kicking, he held on. He held the legs to him, tears rolling down his face. He could no longer save him, but at least he could hold him. Dance grabbed him by the shirt, unsheathed the knife, and looked about to slit Willis's throat. But I launched myself on the big man, wrestling him away from my friend, only to be dumped on the deck. Dance stood over me, anger and fear in his eyes, his blade raised high, ready to strike. I gulped what I was sure to be my last breath and steeled myself for the strike. But then a dark figure swung from the mast and slammed into Dance, knocking him to the deck. Just as quickly as it came, the figure was gone, moving with a speed I did not think possible. It appeared as if they had left a guard on the ship after all. But where had he come from? And where had he gone? The shape was like the shadows around us, utterly mysterious, unknowing, and deadly. Dance yelled at Caro to stop crying and get us off the ship. Caro threw a kicking and screaming Willis over one shoulder, then grabbed me by the shirt. When I resisted, Caro raised a fist and smashed it into my face. And for the second time that night, I lost consciousness. The last thing I remember was seeing a small, dark shape slip up the ropes and disappear into the crow's nest. Ocean was written and directed by Keenan Ellis. Ambient sound designed by Sword Coast Soundscapes. Check out our other podcast, The Phone Booth, which explores a world in which 99% of every human being on the planet has a superpower. Also, if you like our shows and want to help us make more, please consider becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash foolsgallery. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.
on the Endless Ocean. <laughs>